There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It was Friday, July 12, 1996, and nearly 20,000 fans were on hand at Marathon Stadium to watch the Australian Test Team, the returning heroes playing their first fixture since the World Cup final in October. Their opponents, however, were not Great Britain, originally scheduled to be in town for an Ashes series, or even New Zealand. Rather, the Kangaroos were taking on the might of a representative selection drawn from six clubs in Western Fiji. This is Tarnished Gold, the 29th chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Wonderful, mate. How are you? I'm good. I feel like this is we're coming back to earth with this chapter after our multi-generational three-episode saga on the English game. This is very much back in the mire of season 1996 in Australia. So it's a lot more self-contained in that respect. But in many ways, what we're going to talk about in this episode, which is the international game and the representative scene in general in 1996, a lot of what we're going to talk about has a very long tail. And I think you're probably still seeing some of the ramifications of that today with the mess the international game is perpetually in. (laughs) It's a bit of a downer after the feel good, you know, salt of the earth Englishman talk. (laughs) That's saying something if that last chapter can be viewed as feel good. It was. Uh, But anyway, we've got a lot to get through, including some more talk on English football in 1996. So we might just get straight into it and look at the environment in early 1996 with still a lot of residual bitterness and suspicion on both sides. And in the push to kind of put everyone back together and just play this season out, talk quickly turned to representative football and what was going to happen with state of origin, what was going to happen with test matches, if anything could happen. So by the time you got to April, there was a lot of barbs being thrown in the media about the state of origin team. And particularly from the Super League players, a lot of suspicion as to how genuine the ARL were going to be about their no recriminations policy. I think that suspicion is well founded. (laughs) Yeah. And You have it on both sides. You've got the question of will Super League players get picked for representative football, considering, you know, they won the court case to be selected for the World Cup, which just got roundly ignored. And then the second side of that is if they were selected, would they actually play? So Shane Edwards at the Broncos came out and said that they're encouraging the players to make themselves available, but they'll support any player who chooses not to. And, you know, this line from Glenn Lazarus sums it up. Some Super League players would be entitled to say, we weren't good enough for you last year, so stick it. I mean, there's no more rugby league comment than that. And I'm surprised a few of them didn't do that, to be honest. Yeah, and I guess they did eventually. And I love when you say there's no more rugby league comment because I feel like Lazo outdoes himself a couple of times in this chapter. (laughs) (laughs) The funny thing is he's still doing it now. Yeah. (laughs) He's just got that awesome rugby league quotable gene. Yeah, well, I mean, he did play under Mal for many years, so it rubbed (laughs) off on him. (laughs) So with City Country teams due to be picked in late April, this game became a real litmus test. So you could argue that this was the first City Country match in a decade or so to actually have any stakes. I can't believe it was Mickey Mouse that far back, though. As a child, I thought I remember it being sort of legitimate, but it seems like it might have been Mickey Mouse my entire life. I'm exactly the same because I remember it as a kid, like I thought it was like the coolest thing ever. Like I love city country, even though I'm born and raised in the city. My dad being from Queanbeyan, he went for country 
So I went for country as well. And I love those country jerseys. And I just thought it was cool. It was this really cool thing that happened every year. And it was only when I started doing the research, you know, I remember doing the 1987 season and seeing all this talk. But even then there was talk of what a meaningless fixture it was and how it needed to be scrapped. <laughs> um, I wasn't aware until this moment that you were colorblind as a child. You, you say you like those jerseys. You, you don't like them. <laughs> Some of the worst jerseys I've ever seen. Oh, I think those two colors go together magically. Oh, my God. <laughs> I feel we are like diametrically opposed on jerseys. We are. We really are. <laughs> it's a real insight into how our minds work. We, we don't really agree <laughs> on much at all on the jersey front. Yeah, well, I was different to you on, on country too because I supported City because in 1990, Ricky Stewart played for City and then 91, he changed to country, which uh, just goes to show how Mickey Mouse it really was. But Yeah. That's not the only case. I feel like it happened a few times throughout the 80s and 90s. Absolutely. And this is part of the problem. And part of the suspicion was that in terms of getting players like Laurie Daly back in the mix, the ARL selectors were really worried that exactly that was going to happen. They were going to pick Super League players and have the Super League players withdraw from the team and you know they would be made to look foolish so those suspicions were raised with kevin neal at the raiders a long-standing critic of city country so he'd been vocal over the last few years talking about it as a mickey mouse fixture and so that led to country selectors like eddie lumsden seeking assurance from daly that he would play if picked so they needed to get that assurance before they could go ahead and pick the super league players I guess this goes to the point of there being genuine concern on the ARL side. Eddie Lumsden had to meet Laurie Daly outside the dressing room as he and his fellow selectors were banned from actually entering the room by Kevin (laughs) Neal. Oh, my God. Yeah, what a time. But as it turns out, the Super League players did say they would play and were duly picked. Laurie Daly was named country captain, which was viewed as this is an olive branch. We're serious. No recriminations. We're all back together. So let's forget 95 even happened and move on with it. Not everyone was so willing to forgive and forget. So Glenn Lazarus again came out and said that he would walk out of camp if he noticed any animosity coming from the (laughs) ARL players in the team. He's the king of the big statement, isn't he? Like the grandiose uh, threat or something, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, And it's funny because he came out for some criticism for those comments. And then in the Rugby League week, after the game, Sherlock had this to say. Having given Glenn Lazo Lazarus a gentle nudge in the ribcage on this page last week, I'm now pleased to give the big bloke a rap. His effort for country the other night and his post-game comments in interviews on how much he enjoyed the camp, enjoyed playing under coach Tommy Rodonikus were first class. So it seemed like the classic case of the boys made him feel welcome and he forgot any grievances and got on with the job. Well, the fact that he was so respected as a player probably uh, diffused those comments, but those comments are animosity attractants. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But we talked about the Laurie Daly and Tommy Rodonikus thing as well, like a little feud in the media that once they got into camp and realized that they were just, you know, salt of the earth footy blokes, they were able to just put it all aside and have a great time. So I think the same thing happened with Lazo. Well, it's been covered before by us, the Laurie and, and Tommy thing, which is awesome, but it was just that there were such two good blokes that were in those positions. If it was Ricky Stewart and Goulds or something, it yeah, could have yeah. been a disaster. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. If it was Ricky Stewart and Phil Gould, I don't think it would have been so harmonious. So the, the game went off without a hitch. Well, I guess the only hitch was Graham Langlands, who was brought in to do a ceremonial kickoff before the game. Tony Squires in the Herald had this to say about Langland's effort. He said, Graham Langland's performed the celebrity kickoff. He shuffled out onto Steelers Stadium, wearing a dark pair of slacks and a leather jacket, trying to corset his ballooning belly. After a wink to one of the country players, Langland's placed the ball in the old horizontal style, took a couple of wobbly steps back, moved in and stabbed the leather roughly seven metres along the ground. He winked again, barreled off the ground with a slight limp, and headed back to the anonymity of his Philippines bar. I mean... What about that? I mean, what a, what beautiful language. But if he had any sense of humor at all, as a bloke, he would have worn white boots. Yeah. 
So that was the first hurdle cleared. City Country went off without a hitch. The players were all back together and everything was going to be sweet. And so the two teams were duly picked for State of Origin Game 1. I'm going to handle it in New South Wales and then we'll do Queensland to look at how it broke down. So with the New South Wales team, in the end, the breakdown was 11 ARL players and six Super League players, which may seem a bit skewed. But I mean... If you look at the lineup, it's a pretty stacked team, and I don't think you'd argue that any Super League players were dudded. So you had Brasher, Wishart, E.T., Daly, Mullins, Fitler, who was named captain, Tuvi at halfback, Lazarus, Andrew Johns at hooker, Harrigan, Ferner, Pay, Adam Muir, and a bench of Ainsco, Menzies, Croker, and Jim Dimmick. Yeah, it's a great side. I mean, on top of everything else, though, all the problems in the game and the game is being pillaged and it's falling apart and then we're going to put up with this 2v john's farce with the yeah i know seven i know which on top of everything else i know i'll never understand why if you're going to play 2v as the hooker you don't just name him as the hooker like i'll never understand it well i don't know how it just became like the thing that just kept on happening and then when kamali came along you know the same thing would happen there it's like <laughs> it's bizarre yeah but um, that squad, I mean, there's no animosity there. There's uh, That's a legitimate squad. The only thing is uh, Brad Fittler is, is captain over Laurie, but I think they had every right to pick Fittler. I mean, if you don't like that, don't try and steal the game, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things there. Like, Daly was out in the press saying, well, don't take the captaincy off Freddie. You know, he earned it last year. If I get picked, I'll, I'll just be happy to be there and I'll support Freddie. So he was very magnanimous in that respect. But the other thing is, like, there was still an appeal to be played out, which, of course, went Super League's way. So with everything up in the air, to give the captaincy back to Daly, only then to have to go back to Fittler the next year, it just would have made it, it would have made the ARL look foolish. Yeah, 100% agree. And it was also, it was incumbent, which we know is uh, vitally yeah. important. Yeah. So no problem at all with that. Yeah. It was a lot of pressure to put on Freddie's shoulders, considering he was still, you know, like a 24-year-old who was being tasked with getting the team back together after like a year of bitterness and, you know, mudslinging in the press. Well, I think it was the right time. Two years earlier, no, but at that time, I think it was the perfect time. The other interesting thing about the team selection is it was a real moment in time in one of the selection controversies, and that was over Aaron Raper, who was favoured by the selectors, but overruled by Phil Gould. I think this is notable for a couple of reasons. One is the selection of Aaron Raper himself, like just this real narrow window where Aaron Raper was in the mix as our best option at hooker. And two, the shock that Gould's overruling caused in the press like this was a transitional moment in terms of having like selectors and not the coach just getting the team he wants yeah yeah we've covered Aaron Raper a fair bit over the years in this podcast and it's always about him being dudded in the rep field but he was a good player for that period so he should, should be acknowledged as such in my best ever Dragons team that I did for the Patreon a while ago I talked about how I thought Brownie got dudded a lot, you know, not getting country jerseys over Cherry Mm. Mesher and always having Aaron Raper getting those rep spots as well. But I think kind of like Raper, Cherry Mesher, Brownie are probably all in that same mix. And I'd probably put like Jim Sedaris ahead of all of them. But there wasn't a lot of talent at Hooker, especially considering you had, you know, the Walters brothers in Queensland along with, you know, Jason Hetherington coming along. So there was maybe a bit of a dearth of talent on the New South Wales side. Mm. But with the team picked, it was up to Gus to get them all together and make sure that they were a united team and there was not going to be any kind of Super League ARL bullshit. They were just going to get together and get the job done. So the first thing he did was to meet with Laurie Daly, have a long meeting to clear the air and make sure they were on the same page, You know, which I think was a necessary thing to do. <laughs> do you think it was like hey Loz hey Gus it's all sweet yep <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then there were immediate signs that the talk had worked so uh, Gladys Craven in the Sun Herald wrote that when Laurie Daly said on Sunday he was going to the movie Twister he was followed by 17 players <laughs> New South Wales coach Phil Gould mentioned this act of unity in his halftime talk on Monday night <laughs> 
If you'd have told me 30 chapters ago that um, Helen Hunt would be getting a mention in the Super <laughs> I just love the thought of Gus factoring her into his pre-origin soliloquy, you know, like <laughs> they said she was just a TV actress. She couldn't carry a movie. <laughs> uh, talk about of the time twisted. <laughs> So that was it in terms of New South Wales and that there wouldn't be any dramas with the team from there on throughout the series. It wasn't quite that case with Queensland who were routed on field and there were continued rumours of disharmony within the camp. So with the Queensland team, it was 10 ARL players, 7 Super League players and I think you can really see some loyalty to the team that did it the year before. So the team was Robbie O'Davis, Brett Dallas, Renoff, Matt Singh, Wendell Saylor, Jason Smith, Alan Langer, Tony Hearn, Wayne Bartram, Gary Larson, Trevor Gilmeister, Brad Thorne, Billy Moore, and a bench of Alan Can, Adrian Lamb, Craig Greenhill, and Michael Hancock. Well, two of those players weren't even Queenslanders, so well done. Um, <laughs> but you can't argue with that squad either. It's a great squad. And after what happened last year, the impossible series victory... I've got no arguments there either. The only one I feel sorry for is Kevy, really. I was going to say, that is the one that really stands out to me. So breaking up the Ipswich connection for Jason Smith, who you could play literally anywhere. I think that was their one sort of sticking it to the Super League selection, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, the other strange one was Wayne Bartram being picked at hooker. So in Steve Walters was injured, so he wasn't available. But all the pre-selection talk was, would Carrad get a recall or was it Jason Hetherington's time? And then, you know, they went with Wayne Bartram. I talk about this all the time, but it's amazing that the cliff that Carrad fell off as well. Yeah. From test hooker to um, forgotten man. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, but I think Carrad or Hetherington would have been a much smarter choice than Wayne Bartram at hooker. You could have Bartram as the like utility role off the bench or even play him at locker in the back row. Yeah. But yeah, you mentioned those players who weren't actually eligible for Queensland. Adrian Lamb, of course, the poster boy for that. And it was actually after Adrian Lamb that they closed this loophole. So in the wake of the team being picked in 1996, the ARL came out and said that we've fixed that up. We've closed the loophole. <laughs> John Brady said, I've asked John Quayle specifically about this, and his view is that if they play a test, they cannot return to state of origin. Adrian Lamb is the only exception. He has special dispensation because of last year's extraordinary circumstances. <laughs> I mean... It just doesn't fly. It doesn't fly at all. But <laughs> last year's extraordinary circumstances, you're already picking blokes like Terry Cook and Craig Taven, you know, like... Yeah. Yeah. Aren't you just rolling with the punches anyway? I mean, I kind of agree with that, actually, after it's been done. So, I mean, like, the damage was done at the time, but uh, you're ridiculous. Yeah. It's one of the great rugby league tropes, the bylaw loophole, like sending guys to England to serve suspensions fraudulently. Yeah, like yeah. It's, it's <laughs> such a funny thing. But uh, it's funny, in the wake of the, the lamb talk, um, Steve Mascord had a column in the Herald, uh, and he wrote this. It's this wait-and-see approach to administration which helped to give Super League currency among some players and officials. Under Super League rules, all players would assign a form every two years indicating which state and country they wish to make themselves available for. Why not sign one (laughs) for your lifetime? And why is this still an issue 25 (laughs) years later? Like, why, why has this been so hard to find a solution for? It's another trope as well of the club officials getting in blokes' ears, going like, well, I know you said you were a Queenslander for the last five years as a junior, but, you know, play for us. The boys are playing. (laughs) Uh, But I personally am stoked that they managed to have this special dispensation for Adrian Lamb because if they didn't, we would have been denied one of the great uh, little feuds that happened at this time. And this was a feud between Danny Weidler and Ray Hadley. And I'm I'm just going to read Weidler's column about the matter. I wrote that there was a strong push for Adrian Lamb to be included ahead of Alan Langer in the Queensland State of Origin side. I said that sources from both the New South Wales and Queensland camps had confirmed the story. Hadley, in a very personal attack, wanted to know who my sources were. I refused to name them. And then he went on to go, Such was the vitriol of Hadley's attack. Lamb felt coming forward was the right thing to do, and I appreciate it. 
what journal would give up his sources or her sources? Like, it's ridiculous. And why would Hadley be so personally invested in this story anyway? What possible reason could there be for this vitriol about Danny Widler saying that Lamb was going to be picked over Alan Langer? Shock jockery and false outrage uh, for ratings. It's just the most despicable form of entertainment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it turns out that the feud went back some way between Hadley and Weidler. Uh, Weidler going on to say, Aside from when I briefly supplied his station with Commonwealth Bank Cup reports, Hadley and I have rarely spoken, except for the time he threatened to make sure I'd never work in this town again after he wrongly accused me of giving another station Metropolitan Cup scores before I gave them to 2 <laughs> 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 This guy needs a documentary. He like, really does. What a prick. Like, <laughs> Metropolitan <laughs> Cup scores. I've heard some petty rugby league feud uh, ignition stories, but geez, that's <laughs> going to take the cake. More bank. They won 36 to 12. We didn't even know about it. I love that story so much. <laughs> but with Lamb in the team and Langer in the team, there were rumours of disharmony. And Fatty probably didn't help the situation with some of his statements in the press. So he came out and said that he was worried that the Super League players wouldn't have the same will to win as the team before. He said, I just hope the passion is still there. I'll be talking to them all individually to make sure they're on track. We should know within a couple of days. Poor leadership from the fat man. Yeah, it totally is. And then you had someone like Robbie O'Davis coming out and saying, we all played for each other last year and you know, after the first origin, it had nothing on that. This year, it wasn't as relaxing with blokes like Alfie Langer and Steve Renoff there. Oh, yeah. What a burden to have Steve Renoff there. <laughs> well, he came out and clarified after the fact that he was actually giving them a rap and saying, you know, we've got these legends of the game in the squad. So it wasn't as relaxing as the year before when, you know, we were these no hopers that were, you know, believed that we were just going to get trounced. But it's not the kind of statements you want out in the press when. You know, you've just been beaten in the first game and there's all this talk about the team not gelling as they had the year before. Well, back to your point, selecting Lamb on the bench is such a waste. Having Bartram on the bench and Hetherington and Hooker would have been far better. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it does show you how well Lamb was playing in this era. Like, he was a gun player. Gun player. I feel bad trashing him for the Queensland uh, New Guinea thing, but that's an administration thing. As far as play goes, he was a superstar. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But with the teams picked, it was time for the game and it was sluggish ticket sales being reported in Sydney and Brisbane. You know, they had to give tickets away at Lang Park to, to save face. Do you mean to say that the public wasn't uh, frothing at the mouth for rugby league after the last two years? Or? No. Uh, the <laughs> first origin in Brisbane did lead to a schism between the Sydney and Brisbane chapters of the Super League action movement with the Sydney chapter advising Queenslanders to boycott the origin and the Queensland chapter saying, well, no, we're not boycotting origin. You know, they're still our team, so we don't want any part of this. Too much boycott talk in this era. <laughs> there was a lot of boycott talk in this era. But so New South Wales won the first game 14-6 in a, a pretty insipid contest. As I said, sluggish ticket sales in the lead up to it, a lack of buzz, and a general talk that Origin had lost its luster. So Jeff Wells in the Sydney Morning Herald said, Origin is a limited concept, a gimmick which was tricked up to camouflage a lake of widespread support for the game. We can sit back and enjoy it now, but in the future, when league has rightly cemented itself across the nation in a manageable form, its impact will dissipate. <laughs> Not quite how it turned out. Well, I mean, you could find sources every year for the death of origin, right? Like yeah, yeah. But it, it seemed this was a big one. I mean, I don't know what it was like in the 80s, if maybe when New South Wales won for the first time they were talking about it then. But I think certainly in the 90s, it was probably like 95, 96, where that really became to, to be a loud sentiment that Origin was dead. And the, the lacklustre first game gave a free hit to... I'm not going to say who wrote this column because I'm guessing you'll be able to work it out when I read this. Remember how it used to be? It used to be Origin Night. Nothing else was allowed to happen. You could have smoked a pipe in the middle of Old Man Harbour Bridge for 90 minutes and not risk being hit by a car. But it's simply not like that anymore, is it? I know it, you know it, the league administrators surely know it, as does Ticketek. The question is why? 
then said columnist goes on to list a number of reasons, including league now has a serious competitor for the hearts and minds of football followers, rugby union. Any guesses as to who might have uh, <laughs> written that? Don't tell me Fitzsimmons has been on this train for that long. <laughs> he, he very much has. God almighty. But in the wake of all this criticism about Origin and talk of it being dead, it needed someone to defend it. Someone passionate who would never step out of line and say anything about his beloved ARL New South Wales team. And that was Glenn Lazarus, who came out (laughs) and said, people who aren't coming to the state of origin match are just being spiteful. They should have a good look at themselves. They're just being childish. (laughs) How did anyone look at this bloke and go, you know what? I see a politician. (laughs) (laughs) But interesting to note that Origin was played on the Monday night in this series, so... I have no recollection of that, and I'm glad because it sounds awful. (laughs) I couldn't think of a worse day for it, actually. Yeah. Weekend hangover, first day at work, like, yeah. No, I think Wednesday's the night. But so New South Wales won Game 2, 18-6. Leading to Game 3, Queensland in a heap of trouble with more injury problems. They had to find a new 5-8, and... Someone came a-calling, and do you want to have a guess as to who might have called the selectors about selection? (laughs) It's rowdy time. So David Page in the Rugby League Week reported that it was Saturday morning, two days before the Queensland selectors were scheduled to pick the team for the last State of Origin game, and coach Paul Fatty Voughton was in greater demand than usual. But the first phone call he receives that morning did not come from a journalist or a selector. It was Dale Shearer. Fatty mate, I'm in great nick. Never felt better. And oh yeah, been doing some goal kicking. Hitting him real sweet. <laughs> Is there anybody more lovable in the game? I know. Like- I love it so much. Um, Les Jeeves, the Queensland chairman of selectors, was interviewed for this article and said, yeah, he normally gives us a ring this time of year to say there's nothing wrong with him. <laughs> How old was he at this point? Oh, 96. Let me work it out again. He was born in 65, so he was 31. Oh, he's still quite young. Yeah, although 31 in, in 1996 is, you know, probably 35 yeah. or 36 in today's years. What makes it even funnier, the Dale Shearer legend, is that, like, he looked 31 when he was 23. Yeah, yeah. The, the baldness. Yeah. So um, I actually missed the horseshoe in rugby league. <laughs> like, the Brian Clay, the, you know... Rowdy type haircuts. Like, yeah. Now they're all just shaven bald. Yeah. The Peter Tunks. Yeah. You had guys that looked, you know, 100 years old mm. when they were 23. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like hard man, you know. But Rowdy's got to be up there with one of the most bizarre careers of all time. Like, you know, 180 or so first grade games over six clubs and just off 50 combined test and origin appearances so basically like (laughs) you know like one in five of his games was playing for queensland or australia mr clutch if i could have one request for a history corner it'd be the career of dale rowdy shearer but yeah six clubs and you know besides early success at manly like not much there in the club career but like it's how you remembered right yeah yeah but rowdy wasn't enough to save the game, Queensland losing 14-15 to complete a, a sweep for New South Wales. And in the aftermath, I think you're really starting to see Fatty's weaknesses as a coach exposed. What, on top of death riding his own team before the series? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, he, he needed to do better at unifying the team. And, you know, that's something Gus recognised straight away. And then overall, it's kind of like, I think it's a truism for any sport that you get one magical run. You know, that works once. And then after that, it's up to the cattle you've got and your abilities as a coach. And so I I think he just had his run and then, you know, it wasn't going to be enough. Well, I've got to say, I'm very surprised that they didn't unify. That They always go on about it, Queensland, how much they love the state. And, you know, all we do is get on the beers at Origin Camp and Mm. we all love each other and play for each other. And then this year they're like, no, not doing that. Yeah. But also, I mean, look at that team I rattled off in New South Wales. Like, it was going to be hard. Uh, in any era to beat that. Agreed. But with the Origin series over, it was time to look at international football, which for the ARL, there wasn't a whole lot there. So, you know, we covered basically every international team signing with Super League and the ARL being left isolated. So they had to decide what their tactic was going to be. And I mean, the smart move might have been to just forget about test football for that year and consolidate on whatever the future may be, letting the court case play itself out. 
and hopefully coming back with a unified international scene the following year. But they went down a different route, and this was uh, inspired by some good performances by Rebel Fijian and Papua New Guinean teams at the World Sevens in February, which when you're basing your international calendar off Sevens performances... (laughs) Rebel Sevens um, performances. Yeah. There's a lot of contempt for the international game. You can see it in Arco's comments at this time uh, about New Zealand. He said, how long before people get sick of England playing New Zealand? It's like it's just so dismissive of any international football not involving Australia. And then also the ARL were just kind of blind to the perception of hypocrisy of them going to New Zealand and trying to, you know, snatch up players and clubs and local leagues. (laughs) When he was asked about why what they were trying to do in New Zealand was any different to what Super League did, Quayle said, it was New Zealand who said they're not playing Australia and playing Murdoch League instead. We're not running the New Zealand office. And it's just more like, well, they started it. So really, we've got a moral right to destabilize and get what we want out of this because we didn't start this war. You know what? I have sympathy for him for that. It's like the old chestnut, all fair in uh, rugby league and war. I guess what doesn't sit right with me is the constant talk about the good of the game. Yeah, yeah. And I understand all's fair in love and war, but just going on this year-long destabilizing (laughs) campaign while you're accusing Super League of doing the same. And Graham Carden, in one of the few blows he was able to deliver to the ARL, I don't think he was a very competent administrator on the whole, he talked about the challenge to New Zealand as a calculated insult to all New Zealanders. The New Zealand Rugby League and all district leagues of New Zealand voted to get rid of this type of ARL arrogance. For the ARL to now come to New Zealand at the request of a handful of people who know they don't have the numbers to democratically achieve their goals is taking their arrogance to new heights. By the way, I've got this new investment. It's called Ponzi. Um... (laughs) So they didn't get the Rebel New Zealand League off the ground, but they still had to think of what they were going to do in terms of international football. And the first thing they decided was to have a series that was going to be called the All Gold Series. So it wasn't going to be the official New Zealand team because they were out of bounds. They were signed with Super League, but it was going to be predominantly ARL loyal New Zealanders, uh, but with the potential for Super League signed New Zealanders to play if they wanted to. How farcical can you get and to invoke the all golds legend in it as well? <laughs> like, And it just makes no sense to use that name. Like it had nothing to do with the current situation. Like you could have gone with any other name. Like the All Golds, it just made no sense to adopt that name for this team. It's almost like, um, all right, so we're going to have the ARL loyal team play the Dowie Messenger rest of the world. You know, like it's... Yeah. (laughs) Don't soil the actual history of the game in this mess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it led to questions as to the motive of the ARL with the commonly held view from the Super League side that the ARL were, you know, like they'd made a pledge that they could provide the players who'd signed up to them with test football. You know, blokes like Chief, Joey, they signed with the ARL because they were told that, you know, they would play tests and they'd all been promised the Australian captaincy. And, <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's hard to get away with that as being the reason for all of this when it doesn't seem to make any sense to progress with international football in 1996 without a reason <laughs> like that. But let me ask you this. Is this the start of the leadership group with the five captaincy promises? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Making everybody (laughs) co-captains? Yeah, maybe they were just ahead of their time. So the leadership group might have got a lot more crowded with the Super League players back playing for Australia. But there were problems telegraphed even before the Origin series with the announcement that Super League players were going to be considered for the game. Uh, but also any player chosen who refused selection will be stood down from club football for that weekend. So it was a carrot and a stick approach from the ARL and a a clear sign that the ARL were expecting trouble over this. Again, I I can't um, can't come down too hard on the ARL for that. You've got to protect yourself somehow in this war. I mean... Yeah, on, on in this instance, I've, I've got no problems with, with the ARL adopting that approach and also saying, look, 
this is how it is for, for this year at least. We've got a court case at the end of the year, but until then, how about we just make like we're a happy family again and play some footy? So I, I can't really hold it against the ARL for that. It would have been easier to get that point across if you didn't have the last year's um, fast yeah, yeah, selections. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the situation was made more complicated by the fact that New Zealand were signed with Super League. So they couldn't sanction an official test. It's unclear what powers the ARL would have had to stand down Kiwi players who chose to not play in this unofficial team that was being assembled as a direct rival to these players' employers. And I think that the situation with Gary Freeman is illustrative. So he was threatened with being blacklisted from the New Zealand Sport Hall of Fame if he played. So, you know, (laughs) because he was ARL aligned, this was one of the few options open to the New Zealand Rugby League as a threat. Players who were signed with Super League were threatened with four-year international bans if they played. Um, petty, man. Yeah. And so in the end, legal action was threatened against the ARL if New Zealand players uh, were either stood down from club matches or were forced to play the match. They also filed a federal court suit against the ARL, uh, preventing them using words like New Zealand and test in any promotions <laughs> of the match. How can you prevent the use of the word New Zealand? Like at that point, like give up the game. You know, <laughs> I want you to stop using the word end. Yeah. <laughs> and they weren't done there. So News Limited uh, threatened the TV um, network who were going to cover the match, TV NZ. Uh, they were threatened with losing access to shows like Chicago Hope, The X Files, and Party of Five, <laughs> among other Fox shows, if they televised the match. How do we get Helen Hunt and Neve Campbell in this episode? <laughs> So that was the New Zealand situation. Basically, the the Super League players couldn't be considered, so it was going to have to be up to you know ARL loyal New Zealanders. On the Australian side, despite early indications from some players that they'd play, uh, it didn't work out that way. So eight Super League players were picked for the side, and they then all pulled out of the test. And so once that happened, there was little choice but to cancel the series. So this boycott plus the notification from the All Golds management that they weren't going to have a competitive team meant that the you know it was a non-starter. So the series was cancelled. Was there anybody in the world upset about that? Seriously? No, exactly. And it was just a mess that made everyone look bad. And with the ARL picking the Super League players, even though there was a lot of mail that they wouldn't play, it meant that the players had to take the step of formally withdrawing from the team, which, you know, opened them up to criticism that they turned their back on the Australian jersey. But then on the other side of it, if the ARL hadn't picked the Super League players, then they would have copped shit, you know, saying, oh, it's just like the World Cup last year. They say they're going to be, you know, open, but, you know, they do, they're up to their old tricks. So it was just like always going to end this way. Yeah, man. I tell you what, though, like you mentioned, the male. I mean, is this period not the El Dorado of all El Dorados for rugby league journalism? Yeah, yeah, that would have made guys' careers. Yeah, yeah, totally. But so with this debacle over, the ARL decided, okay, look, it's not going to work out for international football this year. Let's just focus on the Optus Cup, and hopefully we can. Oh wait, no, they didn't do that. They decided that. Without the All Golds, they might see what else they had on the international front. And that was a representative team from Western Fiji made up from six clubs that had been established on this tiny foothold um, resistant to the Super League presence in Fiji. They were deemed to be a, a worthy rival to Australia for a test match to be played. Think about that. It's like saying um, uh, the Geelong under-17 basketball team, you'd you be playing the dream team in uh, the 92 Olympics. Like, what were they thinking? Like, I, I just, I, <laughs> I cannot fathom that this match was actually played. Farcical. But before we get to the match itself, we should uh, spend a bit of time looking at the situation in Fiji and how it got to that. So we've talked about Bob Abbott in the past. He was the ARL administrator who was heavily involved in developing, you know, 
Pacific nations, Fiji being one of them. And so you've got to feel for him. Like he was there all the time and, you know, he thought he'd laid the foundations and, you know, everything was was happening in the Pacific. And he mentioned that... And so in the wake of this team being put together, he came out and said that the last time he went to Fiji, he felt something was off, like he wasn't being greeted warmly in the same way he had been in the past. As it turned out, John Rebo was there too and had just signed them up. Sliding doors? (laughs) And I feel for Abbott in a number of ways. So he said, I saw John Rebo during the trip and I said, there's no way you can provide the people with expertise that this country needs. He said, we'll buy them. Which like kind of sums up the Super League approach and you can't argue that Super League or News Limited cared about developing the Pacific Islands the way Bob Abbott at the ARL did. Like it was purely a strategic move to destabilize the ARL's cause. It's really sad. Yeah. Yeah. Like it sucks, you know? But as for Fiji, what were they supposed to do? The ARL offered to double their annual payment. Super League's offer was twice that much again. Their position was maybe made stronger by one of their key negotiators who uh, was investment banker uh, who would soon find fame as a coup leader, George Spate. (laughs) I actually remember that vividly, the Fijian coup. Yeah, yeah. But when I um, found this out recently, I, I was like, I feel like I remember a story involving George Spate and Wally Lewis. And so I asked for a bit of help on Twitter, thanks to uh, James Cheeseman, Brad Walter, Jeff Gabriel, got some good help that allowed me to put the story together. So basically, Wally Lewis and George Spate's children went to the same school in Brisbane, and they happened to be at a school fete one day in 1999, where George Spate came up to Wally and said, you're Wally Lewis, I'm going to be more famous than you one day. Uh, And then cut to a year later, Wally at home with Jackie and Jackie notices the on the news this Fiji and Co and said, There's that bloke that came up to you at the fate last year. <laughs> Alright. That's just an example off the bat of the people that come up to footballers and say the weirdest shit, right? <laughs> I mean what the hell's Wally supposed to answer to that? Okay, yeah, good. Yeah. Um but also it shows the megalomania behind a coup leader as well. <laughs> and Wally gave Spate some credit, he said People shoot their mouth off to impress, but not too many go right through with a coup to keep their promise. (laughs) And so as part of the deal that uh, Spate helped to negotiate Fiji signing, they were offered the World Nines for five years as part of that deal. So, you know, that's why it took place in Fiji in 1996. Right. But almost instantly, the first signs of trouble in Super League's international strategy appeared. So we've you know, heard about the Auckland ambivalence and, you know, the Port Moresby staying loyal to the ARL. The same happened in Western Fiji. So Abbott set up a small competition in Western Fiji. As I said, there were six clubs. And with that, that was the basis of this team that was put together. And so it got the go ahead. This time, no Super League players were considered. It was going to be an an ARL only team. Uh, As with the New Zealand team, Australia's opponents were unable to be called Fiji, the Barty. The ARL couldn't refer it to a test, so as a test. So all those same uh, restrictions were were placed on the match. The Fijian team named themselves the Wau, which was uh, a Fijian clubbing stick. And so the team was a ragtag bunch of rugby union converts. Noel Cleal was appointed coach, and he said that ten of them had some international experience and said that they were no mugs, which I think that's classic league speak to legitimize a team who were about to get thrashed by 80 points. <laughs> but, I mean, there's first tier nations that get beat by 50 by Australia. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> uh, so their captain was a player who had been banned for a, a rebel rugby union tour of South Africa in the 1980s. And so he was unconcerned about the prospect of a four-year international ban that the Fijian Rugby League were going to slap on anyone who played in the match, saying, I've already had one of those. I thought he said no mugs. <laughs> uh, and Coach Cleal gave all the players nicknames because he couldn't pronounce their names, which was <laughs> which was reported as this, like, you know, 
funny, lighthearted story, <laughs> you, you know, in a way that it, it wouldn't be today. Um, Cleo was quoted as saying, the best player is the lock, but don't ask me his name. I mean, fair dinkum. Yeah. I'm not touching that one. Learn the people's names for Christ's sakes. It's one thing for the media to make jokes about names and, you know, say stuff like that. But for the coach of the team to come out, you know, he gave all the players individual nicknames and... (laughs) It might more work to come up with those than their their given names. (laughs) Crazy. So it was set up to be a farce and, you know, that's how Julie played out. But... This test series, or test match, and the... Sorry, I won't say test match because they weren't allowed to call it that. Yeah, I believe you were (laughs) prohibited from using the word test, Michael. So this fixture, uh, in addition to the cancelled all-gold series, led to a lot of discussion in the press about the Australian jersey and what it was worth. You know, there was criticism of the players who would turn their backs on the Australian jersey you know, Frank Hyde came out and said that he would turn his back on rugby league forever if the eight players who, you know, stood down from the All Gold series were picked again. You had like a, a heartfelt article from Ian Heads in the, the Rugby League Week about what that jersey used to mean to players and, you know, it wasn't the same thing anymore, which I can understand the sentiment from people like Heads and Frank Hyde. But in my view, not accepting an Australian jumper isn't the only way to cheapen that jumper. Yeah, it was cheapened across the board in this era. Yeah. And, I mean, inventing international opponents out of nothing is another way of cheapening that jersey. I mean, this points to the larger um, issue we're always on about on this podcast about the contempt for the international game. Without like, legitimate internationals, what are we? We're AFL. Yeah. Playing in a few states in a small country. Like at this point here, I mean, it was on a knife edge and whether it was going to ever come back. And like, I know that state of origin had already became like the dominant force by this era, but I wonder how much these three years did to exacerbate the decline of international football. Like when you hear yeah. Ian Head's like in his column, talking about all these players who bleed for the jersey and, you know, like he went to name on, you know, a dozen players from the past who, you know, it meant everything. Like, it's just not like that anymore and I don't think it has been since this era. Well, I tell you what, up to 94, I never considered Origin to be the pinnacle. I wanted to see the best players in the Australian team forming the best squad you could get. That was the coolest thing to me. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking, that, you know, we're only – two years from another kangaroo tour where, you know, Great Britain had the chance to win the series. International football was back. And, you know, suddenly we get these three years and it's just taken so long to recover. It definitely um, exacerbated the problems of international rugby league. Yeah. And so this match against the Western Fijian team led to a lot of recriminations about what the ARL was doing. So there was a scathing column from uh, Danny Weidler and Paul Kent. It opened with, the ARL is prostituting the tradition of the Australian jersey by staging a farcical <laughs> test. You know, even like blokes like Arthur Beetson, who was a selector, came out and said, nobody has explained to me why this game is going ahead. I can't fathom it or understand the reason for it unless there's a hidden agenda. Well, I think he's hit the nail on the head. Yeah. With a hidden agenda, Arthur. Probably the most fitting statement was from Jeff Wells, who was a, a Herald writer who was pretty staunchly pro-Super League. But I don't think you could accuse him of any bias. I think this is just a fact, and it's so beautifully put. In one of the most bullheaded exercises in hubris in the history of sport, it's possible to pull on an allegedly Australian jumper and humiliate a bunch of hapless islanders. <laughs> a game with the racial... Yeah, I know. I, <laughs> that was unnecessary, but I just love the... Wolf-headed exercise in hubris. But it's just like, it goes against everything the game stands for. Early in the podcast, we coined the rugby league motto, don't bully the underdog. <laughs> what are they doing here? Yeah. They're bullying underdogs. And in big league, Arco like had a opening statement about the test and all he had to say was, you know, like this Fijian team, there's a great spirit within the squad and they're going to do their country proud. And, you know, we're proud of our boys, you know. That's what he had to do to talk this match up. You know, everyone knew it was Mickey Mouse, but as the ARL boss, he was kind of obliged to sell it as a match. 
But instead, he came out and said, The importance of playing this match cannot be understated because of our determination to oppose those seeking to destroy International Rugby League by attempting to isolate the world champions. Yeah, clueless. Like, just blatantly saying that we're staging this match, we're destabilizing, like, other areas because this is happening to us. Like, yes, like, the ARL were the victims in many ways, but this isn't the way to go about winning or maintaining sympathy. I take issue with the fact that you're calling this Mickey Mouse. No one from Disney was sanctioning this game. This is like Aldi brand Mickey Mouse. (laughs) Well, I wasn't actually the only uh, one to call it Mickey Mouse. So our old friend Fitz again came out uh, in the most pompous bit of horseshit I've ever read. Um, (laughs) He came out against the players who turned down the Australian jersey for the All Gold series. He said, Try this for an approach. Okay, lads, see you later. And never darken our towels again. Full stop. End of the section. Seriously, from this point on, the ARL should affect as near to a disdainful but untroubled silence as it can manage. Okay, okay, so the series the eight players were going to be playing in was Trey Mickey Lasaurus, but it was still an Australian jumper. <laughs> yeah, I have no words for this guy. <laughs> So the match was played and pretty predictable result, 84 to 14, which like really that's, you know, that's a credit to the- amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was a particularly good result for Noel Cleal, who got on the 92-point start that was on offer with the bookies. Okay, so we've got the uh, test and inverted commas coach betting on the results of the game, have we? Yeah, which I've got less of a problem with that than I do the fact that an international fixture could have- one team having a 92-point start. <laughs> well, I'll just bring that up. Because, like, if that happened in any other sport, the person would be banned for life. But here, it's just <laughs> a bit of a laugh. You know? <laughs> and the match saw Andrew Johns beat Michael O'Connor's Australian record of uh, 32 points in a match. Uh, but this isn't officially acknowledged because it's not acknowledged as a test match. So what does this count on his record, like an international does yeah, it, like a yeah, tour game? Yeah, yeah. So it's not classed as an official test. The surprising thing to me was that the crowd, so it was played in Newcastle, uh, a crowd of 19,234. But so that match done and dusted, again, the ARL decided that they needed to press on and uh, <laughs> planned for a rest of the world match to take place. At first, it was going to be in July, so... This match uh, was in June. The rest of the world like hadn't even been organised, but they were saying it was going to take place in July. Farcical stuff, like there were reports that Jim Dimmick and John Hopawati, who were stolen from the Tongan team to play for Australia in the World Cup, were going to be forced to play for the rest of the world team to strengthen that squad. Like junior soccer. Yeah. You know, we're <laughs> short a couple of players, you got to play for the other team. Yeah. Uh, and it was going to feature ARL loyal English players. And so the rest of the world match did go ahead in 1997, featuring Jason Robinson and Gary Connolly. So that was basically the extent of the contribution the ARL got from those two blokes, from the money they paid them to sign with the ARL. But in July, it got postponed and they said they were going to go ahead with it at the end of the year. Um, but then it was swiftly called off anyway. And so in its place, you had an Australian team playing against the rebel Papua New Guinean team, the Port Moresby Vipers. So just a sad end to the ARL's attempts to continue international football in 1996. But if... Tough position to be in, but yeah, pathetic. Yeah, tough position to be in, but they handle it as bad as you could. But if we're talking about the ARL making a mockery of the international game, Super League's efforts in 1996, were little better. So this started with the much-touted Oceania Cup, which was to feature Australia, New Zealand, all the Pacific teams, Papua New Guinea. That fell apart for 1996 with no official reason given, but Jim Maher writing in the Rugby League Week that uh, it's possible that there were Super League doubts about the competition's financial viability. More likely would have been Super League's unwillingness to have underwritten another suspect financial proposition, which was News Limited's favourite thing to do in the Super League era, to underwrite suspect financial <laughs> pro- propositions. I find it hard to believe that in the uh, you know two dozen incinerators going 24 hours, they were worried about the money for that. Yeah, yeah. 
But so what they planned instead was a Great Britain tour of New Zealand, which was also going to stop off in Fiji and Papua New Guinea. So this saw the ARL flex their muscles and stop Jason Robinson and Gary Connolly from playing. But it was a welcome return to international football in the eyes of English fans, about 400 of whom came to Australia mid-year because they'd already booked their tour packages (laughs) for the Ashes series that was supposed to take place in 1996. So that all happened before Super League broke and they were left with no tests to play for. So they came around and just uh, watched some club games and and had a couple of weeks on the piss in Australia. That would have been extra sunburnt with no tests. (laughs) But so the tour of New Zealand had lackluster prospects from the start. So it was a fact then, and to some extent, it's still a fact now, that a lack of Australia made the tour look less fair dinkum. So Morris Lindsay had, a few years earlier, said that any future trips to the Southern Hemisphere to just take on New Zealand wouldn't happen. So as a tour manager on one of those tours, he came home with a loss of £750,000, and so said it's not worth doing. But he went against his own advice in this era in a desperate show of wishful thinking, saying he was sure crowds would be far greater than in 1990. And, you know, he, as the Super League World Board chairman, had made a commitment to put on international football. So it wouldn't look good if he was unable to provide that in his first year. I think the well-being of the game is probably your number one objective, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, this is the thing. Like, it's exactly the same as what was happening with the ARL. So Lindsay had no choice but to, you know, push forward this for purely ideological reasons, nothing to do with the health of the game or, you know, the benefit of the game. It was just all about him saving face personally and Super League honouring their, you know, promise that they were going to, you know, deliver this new future for International Rugby League. Pathetic. And again, no one covered themselves in glory. So a P&G tour of New Zealand was to take place around the time the England team were there. That was a disaster. They got 2,000 people to one of those matches as New Zealand won 62-8 to and 64-0 in the two matches. I mean, at the time of recording this, just the growth of the smaller teams in International Rugby League, it's a cause for celebration. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the problem is it's always just on this knife edge. We never have a solid footing with it, but, you know, hopefully it continues. But in 1996, the PNG split was causing issues in a lot of ways. One of those was the tug of war over the services of Adrian Lamb. This is one of the most farcical elements of the whole thing. So he was ARL contracted, so it was expected that he was going to play for the Port Moresby Vipers. But he was also, you know, so closely aligned with rugby league in Papua New Guinea that, you know, to not have him in the national side, it just wouldn't have been in anyone's interest. So a deal was struck where he was allowed to play for both the ARL Port Moresby Vipers and for Papua New Guinea, the national team (laughs) against Great Britain. As farcical as that sounds, I'm actually happy they did that. That's actually for the benefit of the game. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, um, so he wasn't permitted by the ARL of going over to that New Zealand tour. The Papua New Guinea team was coached by Wayne Bennett's brother, Bob, and the decision to ban Adrian Lamb from going over to New Zealand led to Bob hitting out at Phil Gould in the press, calling him a pig of a man. <laughs> He's been called a pig a few times in his life, <laughs> poor old Gus. I think Ricky Stewart was a a key (laughs) pig commenter. And Papua New Guinea was the scene for the first signs that this Great Britain tour was in trouble. So they left Manchester to head to Papua New Guinea and at Port Moresby Airport, because of course they weren't playing Port Moresby because Port Moresby was ARL aligned, they were going to a different part of Papua New Guinea, had to get a connecting flight which was delayed five hours. So you had these scenes of these English players like lying on the floor in the terminal, stifling heat. Was that a precursor to the jelly on the terminal floor? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They ended up making it to their destination 47 hours after they left Manchester. Good Lord. So not the start you want to the tour. And on field, it wasn't any better, only just beating Papua New Guinea 32 to 30 
My lord. I tell you what, that's a great way to even up the playing field, just have a 47 hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and to be fair, it was a weakened Great Britain squad. So, along with the ARL players who weren't allowed to go, Martin Afire was left out. You know, tour manager Phil Larder saying he has the ability, but not the enthusiasm for the tour. So, it was a young team and a very inexperienced team. But credit to Great Britain for unearthing the next generation. So, Andy Farrell was the skipper. He was just 21. Making their international debuts were Adrian Morley, Paul Sculthorpe, and Kieran Cunningham. Well, some class there. So, you know, it was a sign of a good future for Great Britain, but it didn't go their way on this tour. So they get to New Zealand. The on-field troubles continue. They drew with a representative team made up with players from the Lion Red Cup. They lost to a New Zealand Maori side and then to, you know, a PM13 equivalent, um, just a B-side basically called the New Zealand 13, uh, in addition to losing all three tests. Bloody hell. So on-field it was bad. Off-field, this needs an episode in itself. What a farce this tour was. So, uh, you know, there's so many stories to come out of it. Uh, one of them was that New Zealand 13 the game was organised in Wellington at a place called Athletic Park, but the organiser of the match didn't realise that there was no drinks licence at that ground, and this was going to be a problem because they were sponsored by Lion Red. So then uh, a couple of days before the game, they switched the venue to a ground called Fraser Park, which was a 45-minute drive out of Wellington. It was too late to change you know, to put in new newspaper advertisements or anything. And on top of that, Fraser Park didn't have a drinks license either. Bloody hell. There's been a lot of New Zealand brewery problems in the Super Bowl. (laughs) (laughs) There were, you know, no post-match functions after the first two tests. Uh, Phil Larder came out and talked about the lack of official functions. He said, We feel as though we're an embarrassment to the New Zealand Rugby League. We've got blazers and ties and flannels, and we've not bloody worn them yet because we've not been invited yet to anything that warrants getting our makeup on. We're just a bit pissed off. What's a flannel? Yeah, <laughs> a different context to, to what I think about flannels. But um, so no official functions. There was no trophy presentation after the third test match. <laughs> Who is running this content? I, I <laughs> No pre-match entertainment, um, ground announcers that didn't know the players' names. Not touching that one. So that's the New Zealand side of things. From the Great Britain side, Phil Lowe was the team manager who revealed that he had to save money wherever possible on the tour and complained that he had to continually barter with hotel management to get accommodation and food costs down. This is going back to the Australian kangaroo stories of the 50s. It really is. But then the worst part of all was in the tradition, they had the test team and the midweek squad. You know, in Australia, we call them the emus. In this tour, the midweek squad were called the ham and eggers. And so after that that match that they lost against the Maori, there weren't any more midweek matches scheduled. So tour management thought, well, they're just getting a free holiday now if they're not going to be playing any more matches. So what's a good way of saving some money on the tour to, on a day's notice, send 12 players back home to England? This is 1996, right? Yeah. It feels like 1926. So this caused a furor, uh, and to their credit, they managed to get more press in New Zealand about this debacle than anything that was happening on the field. You had the the 12 players partying it up in a nightclub on the eve of their departure and being snapped by the paparazzi. So it was just a mess. You know, roundly hounded as a poor decision, except uh, from John Rebo, who said, As far as I'm concerned, the decision to pull players and officials out at that stage of the tour was a good business decision. It was never going to be a money-making tour, so why not cut your losses? If the ARL had adopted a similar approach, it might not be floundering financially. (laughs) God, it's vindictive. And I love that quote from Rebo because it's up there with the, like, you know, aren't you blokes interested in finance of, like, (laughs) a rugby league guy trying to sound, like, smart in a business sense. Yeah, yeah. You know what would have been even smarter? Not starting the tour. <laughs> <laughs> the tour didn't commence, so you would have had lots of money. And then that decision quickly led to problems. Firstly, they realized they hadn't left themselves enough cover, so they called Brian McDermott to come back into the squad. But he'd already changed his travel arrangements and that of his girlfriend, who was 
uh, meeting in Australia afterwards. So he declined the recall. The English squad were then hit with injury problems. So Tolson Tollett, who was one of those players who was sent home, luckily enough, uh, his parents lived in Australia and he was visiting them. So he was called back into the Great Britain squad after already leaving. But in the end, he didn't get a game in the third test anyway. So we've got ground bookings with no license for the sponsor, changing the ground to another ground with no license for the sponsor. So zero planning there. You've got ad hoc sending players home decisions without considering the possibility for cover and injuries. What is going on? (laughs) So... That's not even the worst of it. So the tour lost over a million (laughs) dollars. How can you go through that much money? (laughs) Just the scale of the cash incineration (laughs) over the course of these three years. Well, you know, it's funny. That doesn't even sound that bad compared to some of the other (laughs) numbers that we've thrown around. Just a million on this tour that no one wanted. So... That is where we leave international football in 1996. That absolute contempt for the game from both sides. Like, it is staggering. I feel dirty after this discussion. Like, we're in the absolute pits of the war now. Like, the toxicity is just all-encompassing, it feels like. Mm. Yeah, so that's the mess we end this chapter on. I really enjoyed putting this together, but actually, like having this conversation with you. It's a real downer, eh? Oh, Debbie Downer. I'll say this, though, again. Thankfully, despite all the bullet holes in the feet, the international game in the emerging nations is a cause for positivity and celebration. Yeah, exactly. So, age. Yeah. Let's just be thankful we're still here. Uh, but that is the note we end this chapter on. So, as always, we'd love to get your thoughts on anything we've spoken about. Uh, And we will be back with the next chapter of the Super League War very soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.